All right, true or false? Raise your hand if you think this is true. The Bible is special. Raise your hand if you think that's true. Okay, everybody thinks the Bible is special. Like, that, that's not a, you know, a giant leap to, to make that claim in a Sunday school class. The question is, what makes the Bible special? And, you know, where, 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 how, how is the Bible put in a league of its own? And we probably all know the answer to it. It's like giant behind me. So I'm going to call this a rhetorical question, not to you know, ruin my thunder here. Because when, when we think about the Bible and what makes the Bible unique from every other religious text ever written, um, there's several things that we could say, really. Most times, evangelicals would jump to the three I's. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired. And those are great answers. But in giving me three answers to what makes the Bible special, uh, it, it strikes me as odd because one of those things is not like the other. Um, one is primary and the others are secondary. What makes the Bible special is it's the very words of God. It's inspired. That, that's what that word means. It's, it's God's very words. So... And inspiration then leads to infallibility, that it doesn't teach any errors, and inerrancy, it doesn't contain any errors. But though inerrancy, infallibility, that's not what makes the Bible special. Um, professor at uh, Sanford, not Sanford, it's their seminary, so Beeson Divinity School, Gerald Gray, he writes, the Bible is not the source of our doctrine and spiritual life merely because it contains no errors, since the same might be said of a dictionary or a computer manual. Infallibility and inerrancy have their place, but divine inspiration remains the key to interpreting the text because that's what makes it the word of God. Um, so if you recall from last week, what we did was kind of gave this framework of divine revelation. So we established that for creatures to know the creator, God must reveal himself to us. That's how we get the term, you know, divine revelation. God has to reveal himself for us to know him. Uh, we said that God reveals himself through general revelation. We can look towards creation. We can look towards conscience. We can look towards uh, reason to know God in part, but we can never know God fully through general revelation. And that's why we need special revelation. That's why we need God's word. It's so that we can know God, not just some things about God, like his power and his kindness. I will send you the notes if you want these. For anyone, email me, dan at uobap.org. First person to get my large print you know, manuscript here, you can have a hard copy. Um, but if you're going to take pictures, you can, that's fine. I'll just help you out. Um, but in special revelation, we stopped short of talking about the actual book of the Bible. Right? We spoke about how it was formed and the creation of it, but we never spoke of the, uh, the final product that God has given us. And so this morning, I want to talk about what makes this book, the full and complete scriptures, special. And as we already said, it's because it's God's own personal revelation. It's from him. It's breathed out by God is how 2 Timothy 3 would say it. And, and here's the big point I want to make, is that we don't love the Bible for the Bible's sake, right? The Bible is great, it's a gift, it's a mercy to us. 
But it's a means to an end. The Bible is a means to knowing God, and God himself is the end. It's God who we worship, not the Bible that we worship. Um, I love the way John Piper says this. He was reflecting on 70 years of defending the Bible and fighting for the Bible and being a Bible guy. And he compares it to a window in an alpine chalet, which feels like a you know nice Christmassy scene. And he writes, I have stood in front of this window all these years, not to protect it from being broken or because the owner of the chalet told me to, but because of the glory of the Alps on the other side. I am a captive to the glory of God revealed in Scripture. There are reasons deeper than my experience for focusing on the glory of God, but I cannot deny what I have seen and the power it's had. Um, for what it's worth, if you're Christmas shopping, you know, for a loved one, you need some stocking stuffers. Uh, if I got to recommend one book on Scripture, I would do uh, that book. It's called Peculiar Glory by John Piper. It's excellent. Um, it's always like 28 bucks on Amazon, which is a little bit extreme for me. But if you go on Desiring God's website, you can get a PDF for free. So there you go. If I get two bucks, I'm going to throw up uh, Mark Thompson's Document of Scripture and Introduction. That's a little bit more... A higher level, right? The, uh, John Piper's more accessible, um, but they're both excellent. So I'd let you borrow mine, but half my footnotes are from those two books, and I got one more lesson after this. Um, so what we're saying is the Bible reveals God to us. God gave us the Bible to reveal himself to us. That's what special revelation is. And so the Bible stands alone in what it does and what it is. And Everything we believe about Scripture then flows out of this point that it comes from God. Um, so all I want to do this morning is point to, this says five, I think three consequences of inspiration. I kept having to narrow it down because I want to talk about everything about the Bible. First draft had 11. Um, let, me, let me give you two notes on inspiration, though, before we get into you know, the outflow of it. Because when we think about inspiration... We want to say inspiration is granular. It's specific. Uh, every letter, punctuation, every jot and tittle is, ex is inspired. There's a, uh, a precision to God's inspiration of his text. There's, there's no stray words in the Bible outside of where God wants them. We see places like, um, what do I have here? Matthew 22, 29 through 33. Jesus makes this argument about what the afterlife is like by saying this. Haven't you read what's in the Bible? God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Meaning, if God says, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are long dead for centuries, that says something. And if God says, I am the God, that says something else about the afterlife. He wasn't the God. He is the God of these guys. We learn about the afterlife by verb tense, the difference between was and is. I mean, the last verse, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished by his teaching. Or Paul makes the uh, argument in Galatians 3, says, Now promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, but to, to many, but to one, and your offspring, who is Christ, right? And 
This doesn't work great in English translations because I think the plural of offspring is offspring, kind of like fish or deer in English. But in the Greek and the Hebrew that you know Genesis and Galatians were written in, there's plural of offspring, offsprings. And Paul says, like, hey, the fact that this word is singular, not plural, has huge theological implications. And so it's, God's inspiration is very granular. It, it's very specific in verb tense and endings and you know, how something is phrased. And at the same time, generally speaking, the Bible wasn't dictated from God. It's not like Isaiah says, okay, I'm going to write my book, and then I'm going to fax my first draft up to heaven God's going to take a red pen. He's going to correct it, fix all the things that I got wrong, make it so it's inspired, send it back to me, and then we'll send that to publishing. No, men and women, uh, mostly men, wrote what God wanted them to write, but according to their own purposes and education. um, Herman Bovink here says, human authors retain their powers of reflection and deliberation, their emotional states and freedom of the will, Research, reflection, and memory, the use of sources, all the ordinary means that an author employs in the process of writing a book are used. I remember a few years back, I was given, um, what was it? I was teaching First John in youth group on Sunday evenings. And I was teaching something of Paul's on Sunday mornings. And I remember just having those two books on my desk at the same time. I'm like, man, these guys are completely different authors. Paul writes fairly linear. John writes kind of circuitous, coming back to the same idea from lots of different angles. And they're both equally inspired, equally important, equally scripture. It's just we have two different guys with two different educations and two different personalities, so they're right in two different ways. Uh, I love the way B.B. Warfield said it. He, if God wished to give his people a series of letters like Paul's, he prepared a Paul to write them. And the Paul he brought to the task was a Paul who would spontaneously write just such letters. And so if, if the Bible is inspired, if it's written by God through men, then we have some implications of how we need to understand the book. And the first is that everything we read in Scripture is true. Um, as I said, you might want to use words like inerrant or infallible here. I'm fine with that. I like true partly because that's the word Jesus uses in John 17. He says to the Father, your word is truth. Um, that's the category the Bible puts itself in. And I think people, you know, deny the truthfulness of the Bible. Um, you know, some people are like, oh, well, inerrancy, that's a 19th century doctrine. Like, nobody ever said inerrancy before the 19th century. And you're like, yeah, they never said the word, but this concept's been around. It's an ancient concept. It's a new word. Um, and so people deny it because they don't understand it. Or, you know, people who love inerrancy go a little bit crazy with their beliefs and go too far in inerrancy to make it easy to deny. Um, that's all parenthetical. Um, this is a big topic. That's what I want to say. And I'm just going to say two things about inerrancy. Um, the first is this. Since God cannot lie... He's completely truthful. His word is completely truthful, 
right? And inerrancy flows out of inspiration. What we know about God has to be true about the things he says. And the, the second thing is inerrancy must be paired with reading well. The common objections to the Bible being true are mostly from reading the Bible poorly. It's like I, when we went to the, the Natural History Museum, I asked the, the tour guide, hey, how old is that T-Rex? And he said, 70 million and six years old. Follow-up. How do you get such a specific number? He goes, well, on my first day working here, they told me it was 70 million years old. You should be laughing. That's a hilarious joke. Um, like that, that's really funny, at least in my mind. Um, I'm a dad. Um, and you know that's a joke and not a true story because that's not how communication works. When you're dealing with numbers like 70 million, you don't say 70 million and six. So we have a while till we talk about creation. Put away your, you know, your ideas about the age of the earth and chronology of dinosaurs. Just go with me a second. Like, no reasonable human being actually believes that T-Rex is 70 million and six years old. It, not to the day, not to the month, even to the year. We don't know. No one's saying, oh, this guy was born. Maybe he died. I don't know how you date dinosaurs. Well, we're going to say was born and 69,977,977 BC. And yet at the same time, no one's saying like, man, that tour guide is lying to me because he said 70 million instead of 70 million and six. It's not precisely true, but it's not false either. It's just the way that language works. A lack of precision is not error. A generalization is not error. Poor grammar ain't error. So we have to read the book in a literary informed way. We judge it based on what it is and what it's trying to do, not on some arbitrary Western post-enlightenment standard that's foreign to the Bible and its authors. Here's what I mean. So we want to read the Bible literally and say the Bible's true. So when we come to places like John 10 verse 7, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Let me give you our two options if we believe in inerrancy. Number one, somewhere on Jesus's person are hinges, a locking mechanism, and a doorknob. Option two, Jesus is a liar and the Bible's not true. Who wants option A? Who wants option B? No one, right? Because obviously those are the wrong categories to think in. Everybody knows this is a metaphor. This is an analogy. We read it as such. Um, but it's not just these kind of obvious statements that are metaphors or analogical. The Bible, when it speaks about God, speaks analogically. And here's what I mean by that. God speaks about himself in a way that we can understand. Um, it's, it's called analogical language. So remember... This is the summer of 2017. We had the uh, Little Shop of Horrors style total eclipse of the sun. And for months leading up to the eclipse, everybody on TV was saying, don't stare at the sun, right? You, you're, you're, it's going to be an eclipse. You can stare at the sun, but don't do it. If you're going to stare at the sun, buy our special eclipse 
glasses. Somebody made a fortune on inventing that. I'm sure there's science behind it, but whatever. Um, because if you stare at the sun, your eyes will burn into your skull. So don't stare at the sun. Um, I remember this. We were It was uh, the weekend of one of my interviews up here. And so Christy and I were driving back to Kentucky. Um, and we pulled into a random Taco Bell somewhere in Ohio because I wanted to get out of the car and stare at the sun. Because um, under normal conditions, you can't stare at the sun. But in an eclipse, I survived. Um, but if, if that's true of the sun, 1 Timothy 6.16 talks about God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so we can't see God directly. So when scripture speaks of God, it speaks analogically. It speaks in a way that we can understand. The enormous glory of God can't be contained to words on paper. And so when the Bible speaks of God, it speaks truly of God, but never fully of God. Does that make sense? It speaks in analogical language. It's Last week, we talked that for an adult to talk to a baby, we had to condescend. We had to leave our educated language and talking goo goo gaga so they could understand us. Um, that idea of condescension is kind of what analogy is about. God speaks in ways that we can understand. And since the Bible is written analogically, we need to read it with the proper lenses, right? When God said, is said to be long of nose, patient, when he said to change his mind, or we put any sort of human language upon God, we realize, okay, that's not actually literally true of God, but in an analogical way, the, the, the truth being expressed is true of him. It's just at a level that we can understand. That's how God communicates himself through a book. That's how he writes, a book of complete and total truth. Jesus himself says, your word is truth. And we need to know how to understand his communication because the Bible is also authoritative. Um, this, is, this is kind of the tension that we had at the beginning. Every single punctuation mark in the Bible is inspired, and yet it's written by men and occasionally women. Um, so, so look at Matthew 10. I have a couple of verses up here for Matthew 10. Because this is where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to go and preach the gospel. And in Matthew 10, 14 and 15, that first paragraph, he, he says, there, there's a seriousness of rejecting your message, the, you know, John and Peter and Bartholomew's message. If anyone does not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And then he clarifies why their words have such weight, such import. Verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So the apostles' words have the authority of the Holy Spirit. And this message is of such importance 
that if they are misunderstood, God's going to fix that in the end. You see that in 26 and 27. So I have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetop. And then uh, we kind of have this summary at the end in verse 40. Jesus says to the apostles, whoever receives you, speaking by the Holy Spirit, verse 19, receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And so the authority of Bartholomew's words aren't just because, hey, I'm Bartholomew, I'm, a, I'm an apostle. It's because they come from the Holy Spirit, and they also, by receiving his words, receive Jesus, and whoever receives Jesus receives the Father, him who sent me. So the entire Trinitarian authority of God is bound up in God's word, no matter how it's mediated. Um, one author says this. Paul says that. I must not have a slide for this. He says, God has identified himself both with Jesus Christ in person and with the passing on by his disciples, the words Jesus brought from the Father, with the result that those who rejected the human words spoken by the disciples reject God. And I think we want to take authority even a step farther that says even the books that weren't written to us were still written for us and have authority over us. Here's what I mean. The Bible was written to a particular people in a particular place and time. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, when you read through it, was not written to us. It was written to ancient Israel. And it doesn't really fit to apply on a one-to-one -one basis. Yet, it was still written for us, even though it's not to us, and it has authority. Um, so I get this from places like Romans 15, 4, where Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So let's say, you know, you're, you're committed to doing a Bible reading plan next year. You were this year too, but we're not going to talk about that. Next, 2024 is our year. And so we're doing great through Genesis. We're doing great through Exodus. And then Exodus, you know, gets to Mount Sinai. And you're like, whoa, we had like plagues and frogs and Red Seas. And now I have Exodus 26, the dimensions of the tabernacle. Like I was not expecting that twist ending here. And when we get to Exodus 26, I think most of us start reading a little bit faster when we realize how big each tapestry has to be for each wall of the tabernacle, what the poles are made out of, what direction the door faces, what's engraved on them, what's embroidered on them. Um, and we all kind of feel a little bit guilty there, saying, like, I should care about this, but I don't. Um, because, let's be honest, like, the dimensions are a lot more important for the carpenters to whom Exodus was written than it is to us living in 20, 2024 at that point. Um, but does that mean God's words no longer have authority over our lives, that they're no longer for us, even though they're not originally to us? Absolutely not. I mean, if they're written to instruct us, we might have endurance and we might have hope. Hope like that God wants to dwell with his people. He's, he's going to tell them exactly what they need to have God dwell in their midst. 
God initiates being with his people. We don't figure out how to get to God. God figures out how to get to us. That was an analogical language about God, by the way. Right? God never figures anything out. God is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. So if I say God figures out how to get to us, that's not literally true. But the, the point stays the same. There's just, you know, another example of that. Um, you know, Exodus 26, the dimensions of the tabernacle should instruct us with authority that God is particular in the way that he wants to be worshipped and that we should worship according to that. Surely that's relevant for how we worship as a church. And, and so even words that aren't to us initially are still authoritative over us and relevant to us. Um, the third thing that comes from the Bible being inspired is that God's word is efficacious. This is obvious. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. If God speaks and it calms the storm, as in Mark 4, or God speaks and the dead come out of their graves, like in John 11, if God speaks and creation pops into existence, Genesis 1, if God speaks and dry bones become flesh, Ezekiel 37, then when God speaks through the reading of his scripture, we should expect things to happen. I don't think I need to explain that one farther. I think I can spend my time other places. Um, and finally, I want to say the Bible is sufficient. In talking about the canon of Scripture last week, what books are in, what books are out of the Bible, what God wants us to know, I said that in God's kindness, he doesn't give us too much information or too little information. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 shows us, like, God doesn't tell us everything he wants us, or everything that we want to know, but he gives us everything we need to know in order to worship him, to obey him. I mean, this, this should come logically to us. John ends his gospel by saying, hey, I've written to you this short book, 21 chapters. Um, if I wrote everything Jesus said and did while he was on the earth, I couldn't fit it. Not just in my scroll, I couldn't fit it in all the libraries of the world. Surely there's things about God that are not in the scriptures. Because of, like a book, uh, this is a good side, well, this one's not ones in my office that I don't carry, are a good-sized book. Um, and it can't contain everything about God. I mean, whenever we speak, my, my point numbers are all over the place because I cut, I don't know, seven points out of my lesson because I wanted to say what's most relevant, what's most helpful to you guys. Nobody, when they open their mouth in conversation, says everything there is to say. I know some people like that. You might think I'm like that. that. That's fine if you do. Most people don't say every word there is to say in all human languages. Um, but going back to the main point of Scripture, if, if, if the Bible is given so that we would know God, God gives us the relevant information to know him. Um, Miller Erickson, a theologian, is really helpful. He says, the knowledge about was for the purpose of knowledge of. Information was to lead to acquaintance. Consequently, the information revealed was often quite selective. For example, we know relatively little about Jesus from a, biologic, or a biographical standpoint. 
We're told nothing of his appearance, his characteristic activities, his interests, or his taste. Details such as were ordinarily found in biographies were omitted because they were not significant for faith. How we relate to Jesus is quite independent of whether he was tall or short, whether he spoke in a tenor or a bass voice. The merely curious are not accommodated by God's special revelation. And so when we say the Bible is sufficient, we want to say the Bible has everything we need for what God requires of us. It's not sufficient for everything, but for the thing God wants it to be sufficient for. Right? So when I had to fix my car the other day, I went to YouTube and not the Bible, and it did not affect my view of sufficiency whatsoever. Um, because God doesn't require a car that starts. Um, God doesn't claim to instruct us on how to change a Ford Escape's battery, much less explain why someone at Ford, I'm going to blame Nathan, I don't know if it's his fault, made changing a battery a three-hour task instead of a ten-minute task like every other car on the face of the earth. Um, rather, what Scripture claims to do is to make us wise unto salvation, that's 2 Timothy 3.15, uh, Scripture's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may com be complete, equipped for every good work. God grants us all things pertaining to life and godliness through his word. So scripture is not sufficient for changing a car battery, but it is sufficient to tell me how a husband should love his wife sacrificially, and maybe that means changing out her car battery for three hours on a Saturday morning. And it trains us to um, be complete, to be perfect, to have a godly life so that when, you know, a normal-sized wrench that fits every other car doesn't fit in the space between the battery and the hood, um, you can respond righteously. Um, I, I, I think we tend to betray sufficiency in a couple of ways. Like, we love the idea of the Bible sufficient, and maybe we go one of two directions with it. Um, a few weeks ago, I was meeting with a younger pastor, and we were just talking about kind of you know, conversations with, with church members. And he mentioned a couple times in the conversation that he would meet with people and they would say, either in good faith, good faith or arguing against him, well, just show me in the Bible the verse that says whatever, um, whatever acts they had to grind. And he would say that a couple times. I'm like, we don't have a Bible literacy problem. We have a sufficiency problem. Here's what I mean. Um, so the Westminster Confession talks about inspiration and sufficiency covering things that are either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So let's say you're meeting with someone and they say, show me in the Bible where it says abortion is murder. What verse do you take them to that says abortion is murder? You don't. There's no verse in the Bible that says that. But I'm assuming we all believe that, and we believe that the Bible teaches that. Why? What are some of the verses that we would use to say, no, we believe in the sanctity of human rights, of human life, and therefore we're pro-life people. What kind of verses do you go to? Because there's no verse that says it's murder. Okay, so Genesis... 
That's not going to work. We're just going to put a G for Genesis. <laughs> One, 27, image of God. Where else do you go? Psalm 100, 30, <clears throat> something that has a few, uh, you get me together and I remember the point. I thought it was 127, but I didn't check myself, so it's probably 139. I'm going to trust you there. Um, where else did we go? Before you were born, I knew you. Yeah, so that's um, Jeremiah. Um, before you were born. Anything else? You can deduce it from the evil edicts of kings that want okay. to wipe out God's children. Evil kings like Herod or Pharaoh? John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb. Luke 141, John the Baptist, preborn John the Baptist rejoices at preborn Jesus. Yeah, you could go to um, Exodus 21, 22 about what happens if a man accidentally hits a pregnant woman and causes her to give birth. Um, So there's no verse that says abortion is murder. That's not a verse in the Bible. But are we going to say that the Bible is sufficient to teach us that truth? Absolutely, because this is what um, we would call a good and necessary consequence that may be deduced from Scripture. We don't need an explicit verse to claim sufficiency. Um, or on the other end of things, we, we I'm not going to say deny, we betray our doctrine of sufficiency when we say things like, God spoke to me. God told me to do X, Y, or Z. Um, maybe this is bad theology. Maybe it's imprecise language. Probably a mix of both, depending on the person. But there's an idea that's pretty popular um, that says the Bible isn't actually enough. And those words are all defined very particularly. Um, but that God will speak to you individually and tell you what to do in any given situation, right? Christian publishing is flooded with books and how to discern the voice of God. Um, it runs the gamut, you know. You got Wayne Grudem, who's a bestseller pr- proponent of this. You have like a Henry Blackaby that's a bestseller proponent of this. And most of them would claim that God still speaks to people, but in a way that's not equal to Scripture, right? There's the Bible, and then God speaks to me um, but it's not, he, it's not about, he, he suggests things to me is the best way I can say that. Um, it's, it's not really sinful to go against God's voice when he speaks to me directly. And I mean, he, he, he suggests it, right? And I mean, I held this position all through seminary until I wrote a paper on it and got feedback. I'm like, I can't answer <laughs> any of the feedback. Maybe I should. If I can't argue my position, maybe I should go to the one that I can <laughs> argue. But I'm like, it's just arrogant for us to try and gag God and tell him he can't speak anymore. But here's the thing. If, if God's word raises the dead and creates the world, can God really just suggest without authority in his word? It, isn't his word efficacious? Isn't it full of power? And if God speaks to you, and you disobey it, but it's not sin, how are we defining sin then? 
to go against the direct word of God is apparently not sinful. Um, and that means, I mean, let's go crazy. Apparently in 2012, God told Michelle Bachman to run for president. Like that was all over the news a decade ago. And God never told me to run for president. So if she doesn't run for president, that's sinful. And for me not to run for president, it's like that doesn't make much sense to me. Um, that, it doesn't seem fair if there's different standards of sin for everybody. And so this ongoing prophecy, as some would call it, or ongoing revelation, it doesn't fit with what we know about Scripture. Um, and this isn't arrogant for us to say this. Like God wants to be clear in how he talks to his people. That'll be point four or five in just a second. He doesn't want you to question, you know, wow, was that God's voice telling me to do this? Or was that the bad shrimp I had at the Christmas party telling me to do this? He's kind, so he's limited his speech to a book. And so we can know what he requires with full assurance. Um, at the end of the day, we really have three options on, you know, this prophecy. It's either contradicting scripture, so we should throw it away, it's repeating scripture, and so it's not prophecy. It's just God bringing to mind scripture, but she does all the time. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Or it's adding to scripture, meaning that the, the New Testament, the Bible, is not enough to guide us to heaven. So are you saying God's not active in people's lives? No, absolutely. That's not anything close to what I'm saying. I'm saying we want to have better theology, at least better language, when we talk about how God guides us. Um, which leads to this last point, quickly, that the Bible is clear. Um, God thinks that his word can be understood. Uh, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, when, when Jesus was questioned in the Gospels, his common response was, have you read the Bible? Like, when he's questioned about the Sabbath, Matthew 12, he said to them, have you not read what David did? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Or about divorce? Have you not read who created man and female from the beginning? Um, about the resurrection? We already talked about this. Have you not read what God said? I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And more than just, you know, God assuming that people can understand his word by reading it, Christians are given the Holy Spirit who helps to overcome the blindness of sin, the, the, the sinful desires that make the truths of Scripture seem foolish to us. And when I say the Bible's clear, don't hear me say the Bible's simple. Uh, Peter actually writes, there's some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with the other scriptures, right? The Bible says parts of the Bible is hard to understand, but hard does not mean impossible. It just means it takes a little bit of work, right? Not everything is clear on your first reading of scripture. We grow in our understanding. But isn't this why God puts us in a community and a church to help us? Isn't this why he gives us pastors and teachers and scholars and students? Because at the end of the day, God gave us his word so that we would know him. And he makes us have an understanding through human effort, through reading well, through studying well, through listening to teaching and growing in our abilities so that we would know him through his word. Um, 
we should expect a level of clarity in the scriptures, and if we don't have it, we keep working until we do. And so now we have two weeks off for the holidays, which seems a little bit too long to me, but I mean, I'm going to be out of state for some of them, so it makes sense. Um, but I still have one more point I need to teach before we move on from scripture and go back into the gospel of Mark. Because hopefully before this lesson, but if not, you should now, you should have this conviction of, wow, Everything in Christianity rests on the inspiration of the Bible, on the truthfulness of Scripture. And so, like most Christians, you probably also then have this intrusive thought saying, but how do we know? Like, how do we know it's true? Because if you pull that thread of inspiration, it will unravel the entire sweater, and then you're just standing outside in the cold uh, because of this, this thought as old as Eden, right? Did God really say and so next time, which is three weeks from today, I want to help with that question. We'll, we'll talk about how do we know the Bible is true, um, but that's for 2024. We're going to end it here. And let me pray. Do you, you want to say something? Yeah, I just raise your hand if you have a, a Christmas party or holiday party of any kind in the next two weeks. Work, anything. Okay? Um, who ha- I want to figure out who has the next one like the most, the, the closest to today. So who has one this week? Raise your hand. Okay, who has one uh, uh, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday? Monday. Both of you, Monday. What's that? Yours is today? Oh, okay. Well, then you get this book that Dan referenced. It's a few of your Okay. Good. All right, yeah, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes from your very own mouth that you spoke to us so that we might know you. That you didn't leave us blind and in the dark, but you gave us your light so that we can see you and so we can have joy in you. We thank you that it's true and trustworthy. We thank you that it holds power and that it's clear and it gives us everything that we need to please you. So I pray that as we go now to worship, as we hear your word preached, that we would have a greater appreciation for what we're about to do, um, that we would worship you with a greater thankfulness and a greater joy because you have given us your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.